Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Ride on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Ride on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome back to Ride on Hollywood, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by CNN where contributors get all their medical facts from comedy podcasts. This week, we'll talk about the best and worst from horror maestro John Carpenter, review the latest setback in Michael Myers' counseling, and speak to a pair of professors studying what makes comedy from the right tick. Yeah, there's the same two guys I excoriated in a recent podcast, but you know what? I wanted to give them a chance to share their side of the story, and they agreed. It's one of the things I really want to do more of here at Right on Hollywood, have conversations with the people who don't see eye-to-eye with me on the culture and probably you too. Now, it is Halloween season, so I'd start with a bit of a confession. Last year, my family suffered not one gut punch, but two. Of course, one everyone suffered, the pandemic. Everyone's lives were changed dramatically as a result. The second for our clan was my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. That kicked off a year-long battle, basically just wrapped a few weeks ago. Clearly impacted my family in some pretty profound ways, but right now the diagnosis is good, and we're all the better for it, but boy, that was some ride. But during those months, with the pandemic going on and with our health crisis, I changed the way I watched movies, or more specifically, I changed the kinds of movies I watch. You know, I usually try to watch the classic films, either ones I've never seen before, or maybe movies I've seen in the past, but I want to revisit, just to kind of educate myself. I'm a film critic. It's what I should do, and what I should kind of expand my viewing habits, but not the last year or so. I also started to watch much, much less Oscar-bait movies, too. What did I watch? Horror movies. Lots and lots of horror movies and thrillers. If there was someone invading someone's home and they didn't want to be uh, seeing those people, I'd watch it. Love those kind of invasion movies. So now, well, even a certain doctor says it's okay to go trick-or-treating again this year. And like I said, my wife's prognosis is good. I think we're over the worst of the situation. But I'm still watching horror movies. Now, of course, it's Halloween, so it is the season, but... Why? Why am I watching these movies? And a lot of them are just flat out terrible. I readily admit that, but I'm not turning them off. I keep on watching to the very end. And I just really don't know why. 
I guess on a certain level, it's escapism. That's what Hollywood movies are. And these are even more kind of attuned to that sensibility. It actually reminded me a little bit of when I was in college, I would watch Gilligan's Island when I got home from class, episode after episode. I've seen them all a thousand times before, but I kept on watching them. It was just a kind of a perfect way to shut my brain off, relax, and just kind of space out for a little while. I needed that. I think there's something similar happening the way I watch movies these days and why I'm watching all these horror movies. And I think I'm not alone, too. Have you looked at the box office lately? Halloween Kills just absolutely beat up James Bond. It's kind of sad. But again, why? You know, I think I'm a nice person. I don't have any shrines to serial killers in my basement. What's my obsession with horror? You know, I did a little digging in this, and I know psychiatrists talk about a fight-or-flight response and how some of these movies can trigger that in the audience in a way that's, of course, safe. You're just in your living room, you're at a movie theater, you're not going to have someone chasing after you with a big knife, but you can kind of have a similar experience. And I don't know, maybe that kind of speaks to part of it too. For me, though, I think the fact that I loved horror movies as a kid, as a teenager, growing up, and when I first got into movies and really responded to them, I think watching them now kind of ties back into that feeling. I've been recently kind of introducing my son, who's a preteen, to some horror movies, you know, being careful not to see the the ones that are too gory or too uh, inappropriate for younger minds, but he's kind of getting a taste for it as well. And it's kind of fun as a dad just to see my kid really start to appreciate horror movies, the good ones, the bad ones. We also have a kind of a weakness for the absolutely terrible straight-to-video horror movies too. They're fun to watch, fun to laugh at, but I'm actually looking forward to the day where he can handle The Shining and one of the some of the classic films that are more complicated, more layered. He's just not ready for that yet on any level, but uh, that time's coming and I kind of can't wait. But you know, I think when it comes to horror, it might be best not to overthink the subject. Not everyone loves the genre like I do, but plenty of people do. And I bet chances are you've seen a horror movie in a theater back in the day and it might rank as one of your greatest horror mov- uh, movie experiences of all time. Why? Maybe somebody cried out in fright mid-movie and everyone howled with laughter. Maybe said something, someone said something really silly or goofy or just flat-out funny during a really tense moment, and you never forgot it, even though I don't condone talking in movie theaters. Either way, sometimes the best horror movies are impossible to forget, and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? This week's Toto Take is Halloween Kills. You know, I usually kind of want to reserve this spot in the podcast for maybe a little bit older films, films that kind of flew under the radar, ones you've never heard of before, the kind of movies that need a little push, a little publicity, you could say. But you know what? It's Halloween season, and I really wanted to steer people away from this one as much as possible. Did I just spoil my own review? Yeah, I think I did. This is the second film in a new Halloween trilogy based on the 1978 movie that everyone saw and everyone loved for all the right reasons. But this one came back in 2018. John Carpenter was just writing the music again, but didn't have a direct hand in it. He was a producer, but I thought it was excellent. You know, I didn't love the third act, but this was a really great way to reintroduce the story, to bring Michael Myers back from the grave, at least the cinematic grave. And also, if you haven't seen it, the first 10 minutes are outstanding. They should just absolutely teach that in film school as a way to how, how do you reboot a franchise? Well, you do it exactly this way. So that was a good start. So naturally, I couldn't wait for part two, Halloween Kills. Wrong, as a certain president famously said. Turns out Michael Myers didn't die in the fire like we assumed during the last movie. 
Now the whole town of Haddonfield is getting together to bring him to justice. Evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight. They cry over and over again. I was bored. I was bored after the third iteration of that. But you know what? Not only does evil die tonight, so does some scary storytelling, apparently. This movie's a mess. It's super gory. I don't mind super gory, but the kills aren't inventive or clever or interesting. There's not much tension here. And guess what they did to our heroine? Yep, Jamie Lee Curtis is back, and she's in a hospital bed for much of the movie. What a terrible idea. She's a good actress. We want to see more of her. We want to see more of her fighting Michael Myers or even running away from Michael Myers, but not here. A little bit of spoiler there, but boy, I think you need to hear that. I have to say the most frustrating part after watching that 2018 reboot was this one just isn't that funny. Now, Halloween movies aren't meant to be funny, but there's sometimes a little bit of a tension-breaking moment that makes the movies pop. And I thought the 2018 film did a great job of that. It was a scary movie. It was a horror movie. But there were a couple of laughs there that really kind of fell right at the proper time. This one, nothing of the kind. I have to say, I went from being glad that Halloween was back to thinking, whew, we got one more movie coming. And yes, it's called Halloween Ends. It's coming next October. And of course, don't get me started on the cast members trying to tie the new film to the January 6th riots as a way to promote the film and get their woke on. <laughs> Talk about fake news. The best way to sample Halloween Kills is right now on Peacock. Yep, you can watch it at home on that streaming service. And you could sample it for 20, 25 minutes, realize I was probably right, and then say, hey, what else is on? I bet it's hard to find one person who doesn't love John Carpenter's Halloween. Yep, that's the movie that started it all back in the late 1970s. It spawned dozens of absolutely inferior slasher movies. I guess we can blame John Carpenter for that, but he delivered a great one with amazing score. That Halloween music is as good as any horror movie score ever. Maybe the psycho music is sort of tied. Perhaps you can throw Jaws in there, even though it's not a pure horror movie, but certainly horrific at times. But John Carpenter didn't stop there, though. He also gave us Escape from New York, um, The Thing, uh, The Fog, and some other good films, too. And he's directed a lot of clunkers. And more often in his later years, the last few John Carpenter originals were, boy, they were nothing like his classic movies. So in that spirit, I wanted to bring on an author, David Vining, to talk more about John Carpenter, what he thinks about his overall body of work, and does he have anything left in the tank? Dave wrote a really smart piece about this, and he also listed the classic John Carpenter films in ranking order, like people often do. It's a really good list. It's a smart list. And you can certainly check that out online. But I want to see what else he can share about John Carpenter, why he declined, and what, I guess, how does he fit into the big picture when it comes to horror? So here's my chat with David Vining. Hope you enjoy it. David, thanks for joining the show. You know, you've been writing about John Carpenter, and he's one of those figures that intrigues me, I think, for two reasons. One, obviously, his work is often exceptional. And I also think that he's overrated at times. I, I have a a critic who writes for Hollywood and Toto, and his name is Barry Worst. He's great, and he loves John Carpenter, and I think he has a soft spot even for the, shall we say, weaker efforts. So generally speaking, what's your take on Carpenter? I, you know, the the hits are undeniable. The misses, I think, are, are the same. Is he overrated? Do you think he deserves his iconic status? What's, what's your take on him? Well, I think um, Carpenter, you know, he went to school at USC where he got his uh, education in film. So you know, he came out of the gate with a certain level of polish to his films. 
you know, he was working on really, really cheap productions, but there was this level of professionalism about it at the same time, you know, going back to Assault on Precinct 13, his first, you know, full production that wasn't just a student film like Dark Star. Um, and so he, he came out of the gate really strong. I see him, like his early career and Martin Scorsese's marry each other like shockingly well, just the way they kind of, you know, started out in um, exploitation type films and then just kind of went back and forth making films that felt more personal to them and films that would, you know, appeal to, to studios trying to build themselves up. Um, where it really diverges is I kind of see the thing uh, in 82 and Scorsese's uh, Taxi Driver as kind of these the, the point where their um, careers completely diverged. Um, you know, Taxi Driver was a huge success and the thing crashed and burned horribly. Um, <laughs> Which many people forget, so, by the way. We, we, it's lo- beloved now. It's one of the great horror movies. But yeah, the box office was not kind at the time. It, it wasn't just the box office, but it was also... The um, the critical reaction was notoriously bad. Um, I think the New York Times reviewer called it instant trash. <laughs> it's um, and it's it's you know it's it, it is my favorite Carpenter. I, I I think it holds up extraordinarily well. But the the fact that it just it failed at the time so thoroughly suddenly mm-hmm. he had to take several steps back. You know, and he you know his next film after that was um, I think it was Starman, um, which is about the least Carpenter movie you can find outside <laughs> right. of something like Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, it's just, it's, it's very nice. It's very heartfelt. You know, it, it's very, it's not the sort of cynical nihilistic stuff that he, he became really known for. And, you know, the story of Carpenter and his, you know, you know, how he kind of just gave up on the entire industry is really written through the eighties um, because, you know, after the thing, he, he went back and he made Starman and he made Christine, you know, he was proving himself again. He could, you know, he could make a Stephen King adaptation. He could, he could direct a, an actor to an Academy Award nomination, you know, Jeff Bridges and Starman. And then he got his, his go again with Big Trouble in Little Giant China and that bombed horribly <laughs> as well. Um, and so, you know, it's his career is, is just this, this constant up and down and his ups were never that up just in terms of like professional right, right. and financial results. And so he, he just he ended up just becoming this director for hire. And you know, I, I don't hate all of his 90s output all that much. Um, some of it is terrible. Some of it I actually quite like a bit, but it, it became obvious that just like the joy of it had been sucked out of him. Yeah. Is there, so, is there one film in his canon that doesn't get enough appreciation even now, but you think is actually worthwhile or, or better than it's advertised? I, I get so much crap for this, <laughs> but I think Escape from LA oh. is borderline genius. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's hilarious. I think it's, in, I think it's incredibly watchable. And I think it's kind of you know the uh, complete the the complete height of his cynicism and his nihilism. This is him just saying, "I don't care anymore. I'm burning all of my bridges. Mm-hmm. I hate everyone in Hollywood, and <laughs> you gave me fifty million dollars to tell you how much I hate you." Interesting. You know, I remember seeing um, it years ago, and I had a very negative reaction. But um, I need to watch it again, and I think sometimes. 
it does help to reassess a film and to watch it with a new perspective and to understand the bigger picture. And I think maybe for me, just the, the FX were pretty clunky and it just didn't have the sort of the, the bite of the, there's no denying that the FX looked terrible. (laughs) Um, And there's no like, you know, explaining it away as intentionally bad. No, they came out bad and John Carpenter was not expecting them to come out that bad. He didn't want them to look awful. Um, my, my less controversial pick from like the nineties is in the mouth of madness. Um, it's, it's gotten a lot more love recently. Um, you know, it's another one of those films that was released and largely forgotten, uh, like most of his work at the time, but it's, um, it's got this marvelous sense of like a cosmic horror that's really, really hard to do. Um, and, and he embraces it fully. You know, it's more H.P. Lovecraft than Stephen King, although there are obvious Stephen King, you know, nods throughout, including the central character of Sutter Kane being a Stephen King knockoff. But ultimately, this like sense of like insanity, you know, the the evil that is so great that it simply drives you insane, I think is so well handled by the end that it just it, it kind of just like roots into the back of your head and just <laughs> like stays there. And um, yeah, it's. So yeah, I do honestly love Escape from LA. I just I know that <laughs> people still don't like it very much, and I'm fine with that. Um, but in terms of like things that I would actually push people to like kind of explore, it would be in the mouth of madness. Great. You know, one of the things interesting about Car- Carpenter and a lot of other known directors is that when they got older, their creativity waned. Uh, you know, I've, I don't think anyone would argue that recent Carpenter is as good, as memorable as his earlier work. It just happens. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, I think for every Scorsese or Eastwood who continues to make excellent work, there are others who just don't have that creative output. They're, 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 the results aren't the same. Any thoughts on that? Because I, I'm so intrigued by that concept. And I, I'd love to think that, you know, age doesn't matter and that, you, you know, if you've got a story to tell, that's what really counts. And also, we all get better as we get older, as far as we, you know, we gain wisdom, we, we have insights, we, you know, a younger filmmaker doesn't have the, the, the experience that an older one has. So why did, why did Carpenter kind of fade away in that sense? It has a lot to do with, you know, what he went through in the 80s and how he progressed through the 90s. Yeah, it's it's if the thing had been a success, his the latter half of his career would have been wildly different. But he spent, you know, most of the 80s clawing back, um, you know, after Big Trouble in Little China bombed, he got an independent contract to make Prince of Darkness and They Live, you know, yeah, it's. Those were mild successes. They live open to number one, which is a fact that tickles John Carpenter greatly because of the <laughs> message. Um, but then he immediately went back to studio work and he directed a, a Chetty Chase vehicle, you know, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. It's just, he's, he was the wrong director for it, but he, it was just a director for hire. And you could tell at that point, he, he a lot of his enthusiasm was just seeping out of him. Uh, There are exceptions, you know, uh, In the Mouth of Madness seems to have been invigorated by his relationship with Sam Neill. Sam Neill carries that movie and it's just, it's obvious they're having a lot of fun. Escape from LA is is a movie bred from pure hatred. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's a certain passion there. It's just not what you would expect. But then after that, it's just, it, 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 
he the the reaction to escape from la was so bad that he thought about giving up making movies it was just i, I threw myself out there again it this made no money no one cares so i'll try once more and he tried it with vampires with um james woods and you know that that relationship with james woods gave him just that one last little push it's like you know what filmmaking can be fun again you know I, i'm not a big fan of vampires but i can definitely see how the experience of making that would just kind of give it to him just a little bit more you know with james woods just being kind of you know entertaining on set all the time and then he goes and makes ghosts of mars which is just the laziest piece of film in his entire body of work well you know maybe you know, it's, it's good just, that he stopped and also in a way, he's kind of taking a victory lap with the Halloween franchise. He's basking in its excellence. He's, you know, teaming up, but not really doing a lot of heavy lifting besides maybe rewriting the score again and again. And uh, I'd say I, no, I, I just I, I think that's a great place for him to go. Yeah, just, you know, kind of basking in the, the praise that he's developed over time. It's all belated, but he's getting it now. So at least he's alive to see it. Yeah. And he gets to, you know, just make music with his children. That's right. um, and get paid for it. So it's, I think it's a great place for him. I, yeah. I think the, the filmmaking bug is out of him. He just doesn't want to make it anymore. You know, I, I thought the ward was okay, but you can kind of see how it was just, you know, a job for him. Um, but it's let him enjoy his retirement, you know, yeah. just, you know, finding new ways to make that Halloween score work. Well, it's, it's kind of ironic that a guy who is, so hateful and cynical and skeptical on screen is is kind of enjoying a sweet, happy ending. So uh, good for him. Uh, David, before I let you go, I know you have a new book. It's coming soon, actually, November 1st. It's called A Sharp Kid. And I was reading just a description. It sounds like a classic Western, but there's a bit of a, a twist there or two. Uh, tell us more about it and uh, what we can expect from it. Sure. It's the, it's the story of a young boy who... Um, joins his father uh, as they go west from Kentucky to Missouri with promises of, you know, further journeys onward. You know, inspired by the Jesse James gang, they start, you know, robbing trains with a, with, with a gang. And, you know, things just kind of, you know, they, they never quite develop the way that he expects. It's, it's, it's a story of, you know, youth led astray. It's a story of, you know, um, you know, utopian promises being left unfulfilled. Um, it's, there's, you know, a lot of action. Um, there, are, there are a lot of uh, characters uh, that I hope are, you know, well-drawn and interesting. Um, and, and, you know, it, it ultimately comes to kind of the only conclusion that I could imagine the story coming to. Um, so I, I feel like it's, you know, a, a, a complete work. I feel like it's, you know, all of a whole. And I, I Feel like it's it's actually quite moving uh, when I when I you know reread it for the thousandth time in order to mm -hmm. you know add whatever changes I need to make. But it's I really feel like it's it's the sort of you know complete package that you know people can really really get into. Excellent. Well, that's the Sharp Kid coming November first. Check it out. You can go to Amazon.com and find it there. Thank you, David, for joining the show. I, you know, I I love this time of year. I love horror movies, and I just recently introduced my son to the original Halloween. We got a big kick out of it. And uh, you know, John Carpenter has his flaws, has his warts, and I may not forgive that uh, surfing scene from Escape from LA like you can, but I, I think he's uh, we're much the better for him and having his artistic output. But uh, thanks, appreciate the time, and uh, we will check in with you again. All right. Thank you very much, Christian. It was great.
Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Mark are doing something few professors are these days. They're giving conservative comedy a really serious look. Matt is an associate professor and chair of the Boston College Communications Department, while Nick is an associate professor of film and media studies at Colorado State University. Together, they wrote the upcoming book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon. But more recently, they wrote a column that was tied to Greg Gutfeld's shocking success on the late night landscape. Yes, Greg is now the unofficial king of late night. I know the ratings go back and forth, but he's doing quite well, often beating most, if not all, the competition. And the column was, well, interesting. And I really had a bone to pick about some of their findings. Actually, more than a few. The two were kind enough to chat with me about their work, conservative comedy in general, and much more. You know what? No fists were thrown, no bad words exchanged. We all got along quite well. And I know that maybe if that didn't happen, there'd be a more click-worthy podcast in order, but it's not what we do here. I really liked the conversation. I thought we kind of both had our says and uh, talked about things in a way that maybe is not often discussed across the landscape. And I also appreciate the fact that they disagreed with me on some things and still came on board, talked about their work. And of course, I really want to have them back in the new year when their book is available for all to read. Here's my conversation with Nick Marks and Matt Sinkowitz talking about what else? Conservative comedy. Nick and Matt, thanks for joining the show. You know, Nick, conservative comedy wasn't much of a topic in recent years, or just wasn't a lot of it. Now we've got YouTube stars like J.P. Sears, and of course, Fox News' Gutfeld. The category is getting more interesting, of late, for sure. How would you describe right-leaning humor at this particular moment in the culture? Uh, That's a great question, Christian. Thanks for having me and Matt. Surprisingly, uh, right-wing comedy, at least in its sort of commercial mainstream forms on networks like Fox News and elsewhere, isn't all that different from the uh, mainstream left-leaning political satire that we've seen in the last few decades from folks like Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, Samantha Bee, John Oliver, and on and on. It is the uh, same type of formula where a sort of late-night host comedian will sit in a position of authority, do a monologue or a rundown of the day's news of sorts. And then it follows any number of familiar comedy television conventions that you see on those shows that I just mentioned, and even elsewhere in places like Saturday Night Live. So Gutfeld pretty routinely does uh, monologue, interviews with guests, uh, pre-recorded sketches, remote pieces, the form of the comedy is not all that different from what's been successful for a while, but obviously the political ideology backing it is. Gotcha. So they're not reinventing the wheel. It's just the content that's uh, a bit different. Matt, you know, looking at Gutfeld, when the show came around, I thought, well, there's no A-list stars. There's no celebrities, people you recognize as more partisan uh, people on that panel. And it doesn't have that broadcast TV budget. It just looks less less. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It's to be kind, but it's doing very well in the ratings, obviously. What's your reaction? Are you surprised by it? Did you see this coming? Cause I, I don't think everyone saw it coming. Yeah. I mean, I, easy to say now. Right. But uh, I think, I think we saw it coming uh, to, to a certain extent. I mean, you're absolutely right that the budget is not there. The uh, resources are not there. <clears throat> it's sort of that sort of star culture that you see that, that props up other late night shows, you know, movie stars coming through and all that uh, is not there. 
Uh, however, uh, this was a long time coming. And sort of what makes it interesting, if you're not a, a consumer of right-wing media, uh, is how it sort of crept up. I mean, Greg uh, Gutfeld has been on Fox for a very long time. Um, you know, he had the show Red Eye for a long period of time. He had a previous iteration of, of a show, uh, Greg Gutfeld show before this one. Uh, and it, it built up an audience, right? It built it over time and it built it, uh, you know, by establishing uh, Gutfeld uh, to a group of viewers for whom he is a big name. Uh, and that's that's part of how it operates. Uh, you know, the panelists are not famous uh, outside of that sphere, but they are famous within the sphere. Uh, and also, as we argue uh, in, in some other things we've written, uh, you know, the sort of broader world of uh, right-leaning comedy is much more robust and has its own um, sort of uh, styles and <clears throat> uh, connections to uh, different places in the media world, connections to podcasts, connections to other comedians. Uh, it's much more self-contained world uh, where it's not reaching out into the A-list world of, of uh film, film uh, TV, uh, but in that space, uh, it's spent a long time developing an audience and uh, creating personalities that mean a lot to people who are in, in that world. So, I mean, you know, whether or not it was going to be number one, and how much that matters, I think is not, you know, not clear, not all that important. Obviously, there's less competition uh, if you do break things down ideologically in terms of who Gutfeld is competing against. Uh, but to make up for the lack of budget, the lack of sort of A-list personality, uh, you have this like sort of the whole world that's been created around Gutfeld uh, in the space of Fox News and then reaching out into other parts of the right-wing comedy world. Uh, so it's got a dis different advantage uh, as opposed to that big budget. Nick, when you think about Gutfeld and what it's doing right now, listen, you know, shows come and go, they rise, they fall. This, The ratings right now could last for 10 years or two years or two months or two weeks. Do you think that the fact that it's happening will change anything in the more traditional late night arena? Does that is it a wake-up call? Is it an aberration? Do you think that the the Colberts and the Mars and, and similar personalities may tweak their formula, or do you think it's sort of it it won't have much of a difference? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and I'm skeptical that the left-leaning late-night hosts will tweak their formula either in reaction to Gutfeld or, or in response to his success. What I do know about studying the television industry for most of my career is that success breeds imitation. So we're virtually guaranteed to see some form of um, imitation, either in the form of another Fox News late night comedy show. Indeed, there already is one sort of in the form of Jesse Waters and, and Waters World. But I could imagine, um, you know, even conventional comedy networks like Comedy Central and elsewhere maybe dipping their toe in the pool of, of sort of right-leaning uh, comedy uh, outside of television. Of course, as Matt mentioned, this impulse is a lot more diffuse and we see different versions of it in the podcasting and YouTube world. But in terms of a, a straight up sort of nightly uh, daily show from the right ripoff, I would bet within the next five years, we'll see another stab at it using a tweak to the kind of late night post panel discussion um, clip formula that's uh, driven much of the success of The Daily Show for two decades and now Gutfeld over the last year. Gotcha. Nick, quick follow-up. I'm kind of amazed that it hasn't happened already. It makes sense that Fox News would go there. They've got the personality, they've built up the audience, they've got the, you know, it's, it's in their wheelhouse. But if you think about, if you look at the landscape, 
the shows that are out there, the you know even Conan O'Brien is sort of gently left. If anything, he's he's probably the, maybe one of the least political voices out there. But if you have a landscape that's that's sort of in unison, you would think that a a, a, a Hulu a Netflix would say, oh gosh, we what if we just threw a righto center comic yeah. out there and gave it a chance? Nick, why why didn't they do that before this? Was, they, was there some sort of preconception that it wouldn't work? I mean, it it just seems on paper like a like a no brainer. It's a, a great observation that what Gutfeld is doing is filling a hole in the market. There did not succeed for the longest time a successful, you know, right-wing political satire show, and now they've got one. Curiously enough, the uh, Fox News has tried this before in the form of the half-hour news hour towards the end of the, the second Bush administration. That show was a much more sort of direct aping of what The Daily Show did. It nearly beat for beat, block for block mimicked The Daily Show's format. Some of the joke writing missed the mark. It didn't quite sort of land in the same way that Gutfeld engages with um, current events and news headlines. Um, We also, Matt and I, explore in our forthcoming book on the the subject uh, a a sort of ill-fated attempt from the network OAN, One American News. They had a show that ran very briefly in the summer of 2020 called uh, Headlines Tonight with, uh, oh boy, Matt, I'm, I'm blanking, Drew Berquist. Drew Berquist. Yeah. Uh, and that too was a, a very sort of direct imitation of, again, the beat for beat, what The Daily Show was doing. I think the success of whether or not one of these efforts lands is something Matt alluded to earlier. Gutfeld was and is a star on Fox News. They've spent years building him up, spreading him across platforms, uh, shows like Red Eye, The Five, he is a star on that network. My impression is that it's successful now because they finally figured out the way to leverage their star. Gotcha. Matt, I, you know, I read your op-ed and uh, I thought it made some great points, but I had some issues with it. And one of the ones, the whole notion of punching up comedy, it's something that we discuss quite a bit across the culture. But when I look at the culture, I think, okay, the government right now, it's Team Biden. The Democrats hold gentle sway uh, over the Senate and the House. Uh, you know, the media, I, I argue, is left of center. You guys may disagree. We'll, we'll kind of put that off for another way. But Hollywood certainly is left of center. How, how can, you know, how can like a Colbert not punch up against that situation? Because I don't think they are, at least not to the the way they've done it in the past. Is, is Matt, just kind of Take that from there, and, and what are your thoughts about punching up? And when yeah. the people in power are, are on the left, that why why aren't we seeing sort of the, I guess the the venom or the vigor from the comedians? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I can't I cannot uh, cannot say that I've, I've uh, you know monitored every every joke out of a Colbert <laughs> as it aims towards a Biden, and and uh, you know you 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 are almost uh, assuredly right. It is far less pointed than it was in the previous administration. You know, I think the punching up thing, I think the first thing to, to keep in mind is, uh, you know, that that is not when we write it there. And I think when people use that in general, it, it's not meant to uh, allude only to sort of the momentary, uh, you know, sort of political hierarchy of, you know, who has one more seats or, you know, in this case, the same amount of seats uh, in the Senate, right? Um, you know, punching up when we mean it, when we use it there, it tends more to do with sort of longstanding uh, group dynamics, prejudices, uh, uh, you know, mocking uh, uh, people who are, you know, sort of broadly disadvantaged, this sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, to me, if the question is why doesn't Colbert uh, go after uh, Joe Biden more? 
I mean, the answer is, is at least to his mind that uh, that's not what his audience wants to see. Whether mm -hmm. or not that's true, I think we could we could argue. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't confuse the idea of punching up being you know the president's the only person at, at whom to punch up, right? Uh, mocking mocking uh, you know uh, uh, minority groups, the disabled. Those so that's what we mean by punching down um, and punching up. Um, you know. Uh, Sure. I mean, for, 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 without question, uh, it would be a punch up for uh, as as Colbert goes after a, a, a Biden or does not. Uh, but, you know, I think we're looking at a bigger question here when we're talking about forms of comedy, punching up, punching down. You know, obviously, uh, the president's going to be a site of some some humor. Um, you know, I guess it gets a little bit uh, diffuse, but uh, I just wouldn't get fixated on the idea of, of the sort of momentary empower place when we sort of talk about that uh the question uh for a lot of people with a with a gut felt is not whether or not he's mocking uh, uh joe biden or but whether or not he brings into that other prejudices and ideas it's people who say he's punching down i think that's that's where they're going to point right as opposed to jokes directed at uh, particular people in power gotcha uh, another bone of contention e either one of you can kind of jump in on this one there's a line in the op-ed it, it says the value or danger of right-wing comedy is a matter of political opinion and I, I, you know, as someone who is of the right, I, it kind of that one stuck in my craw because thinking, well, you could say the same about a left wing comedy outfit that it mm -hmm. could be dangerous. Although I don't really like the term dangerous in the terms of comedy because I, I don't know. I, I think, I think in a way, not to not to diminish the work that you all do, but I, I, I think we've kind of put maybe too much stock in comedy and jokes that it could change the world. I, you know, I think it illuminate things. But uh, let's just kind of go in there in that direction. Defend, describe danger of right-wing comedy that just you know because i think you know when you're writing an op-ed you don't have enough space you can always write more and you've got a book coming out obviously which is going to i'm sure expand on things what do you mean by that and how is it different from left-wing comedy in that regard um I'll, I'll i'll jump in so you know certainly um you know you could you could make a, a parallel statement in the other direction i think that the the idea of where that's coming from uh, it's particularly, you know, largely for for uh, liberal audiences sort of taking for granted or, or put this way, culturally speaking, uh, the role of liberal satirists has been much celebrated over over, you know, whatever the past 30 years, uh, sort of well understood and sort of figured into our uh, sort of political calculus. Uh, I might tend to agree with you that the role of a, of a John Stewart in our in our politics might be overstated, uh, but it's certainly baked into our understanding. Uh, so the first thing is to say that the reason to note that is that uh, right wing comedy is less baked in, uh, we would argue, to our general political understanding, uh, that there are a lot of people mostly on the left who uh, don't acknowledge its existence at all or find ways to define right wing comedy not as comedy so as to not have to sort of uh, uh, deal with any cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, why note the danger? I mean, as we say, it's a matter of political uh, opinion. Uh, if you want to say that you think, uh, you know, sort of a liberal comedy uh, that blurs the line between satire and news and uh, that sort of thing, a John Stewart has a, a you know, sort of a, a potentially a bad effect on our discourse, you could say that. Uh, when we are talking about right-wing comedy, uh, to put our sort of cards on the table, um, you know, we, we see, you know, connections, uh, in this world that goes from sort of mainstream voices to fringier voices uh, and to, you know, sort of uh, uh, people on the extremes. Um, so what could be a danger? Uh, a danger could be uh, if you don't, if you're not of the right uh, and you think it's a danger to uh, have right wing opinions gain more credence in, in culture. That's a danger. Of course, as we say, that's a matter of political opinion. Uh, we would also, I, I think, point to uh, what we show connections to between uh, sort of more 
mainstream aspects of right-wing comedy uh, into fringier elements uh, of, of uh, the right-wing world. Uh, but again, it's a matter of perspective. Gotcha. Uh, one of the things that conservatives often complain about when it comes to late night humor, and that's one of the main focuses here, and it's one of the part of the kind of a key cog in the uh, comedy landscape now is clapter, that a lot of the jokes, the material is aimed to elicit applause and like, oh, yes, I agree with that, too. And it's often not that funny. You know, Colbert, I think any conservative would say, you know, boy, I used to like Colbert. I thought he was funny or I genuinely think he's talented, but I don't, I don't what I hear now doesn't feel as ripe, as funny as it once was. Uh, either of you have thoughts on sort of that term and, and, and its impact on, on political humor at this point? Yeah, I, I can uh, jump in here and note that um, regardless of your political stance, uh, if you are Greg Gutfeld, if you are Stephen Colbert, the main job you have as someone appearing on television is to attract and hold an audience for your advertisers. I think that before either of those folks is worried about the broader sort of political implications of their joking, they want a response from their viewers and the sort of rise of other ways to get that response from viewers, that, that clapter word that you note, Christian, has been part of that. TV audiences have been fragmenting and being siphoned off by streaming platforms and video games for years now. And so I view that trend as a, a broader effort on the part of old school broadcast networks to sort of find another way to reach out. Now we can sort of debate the, the finer points of who's actually funny and, and, and who's not based off of that. Uh, but I definitely see it as an impulse used by both left and right wing comedians to just sort of generate any kind of engagement that is sticky, right? That gets an audience member to stick around, to click, uh, to click the next link, to, to download the next episode. Uh, and so I see that clapter impulse as part and parcel of whatever more day-to-day -day joke writing processes might be happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that that's a really uh, good point, right? I mean, part of this does have to do with different forms of distribution. Um, you know, getting out something that somebody will engage with quickly, you know, it's an efficiency to play on, you know, pre-existing ideas. Uh, and that's what the, this sort of clapter approach does, right? It, it takes, it, it does not ask a viewer uh, to go through a set of steps to come to a new idea and find it funny, right? It tries to find something that's sort of low hanging and immediately get to it. I mean, there's always an impulse towards efficiency in media industry, uh, especially, you know, comedy. I mean, writing, writing joke after joke, night after night, it's really tough stuff. Uh, and especially if it, you don't have uh, sort of that old broadcast assumption that people turn it on, they're going to give it a chance. So there's a lot of incentives at the moment uh, to get straight to something people will react to. Uh, it's an efficiency now. I mean, I do think this is a case in which uh, uh, the market can, can be of use uh, if it is, in fact, uninteresting ultimately. And if it is uh, something that is repeated too often, uh, one suspects it'll cease to have that quick engagement factor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is there a cost in the meantime in terms of like sort of comedic art? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, it actually reminds me of the uh, the last Dave Chappelle special for Netflix. There may be a new one coming soon, but uh, Sticks and Stones, it made me uncomfortable. And then midway through, I'm thinking, oh, he's trying to challenge me to force me to kind of think from this from a different perspective. And I was, I really, it made me appreciate it more. But like you said, that's a special he wrote and wrote, whereas Late Night is cranking out jokes every day. Uh, one last question for both of you. Uh, I, the first guest on our show was Seth Dillon of the Babylon Bee. And I've noticed how... 
there's been, uh, maybe attack is too strong a word, but a lot of people are criticizing the B. It's a fake news site. It says exactly what it is. It's pretty obvious. But, you know, their stories are often fact-checked. Uh, Facebook gives them fits. I think the New York Times wrote about them in a way that they had to go back and apologize. It's just a right-of-center, Christian-friendly satirical site. I think they're brilliant, and they're, not every joke lands. What are your thoughts on it feels like there's a push against it. And at the same time, the onion has existed for, gosh, I don't know, a decade or more. And I don't see that kind of animosity toward that particular fake news site. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in then it can, it can follow. Um, there's something there uh, for sure. I mean, I will say it's not true that the onion doesn't get fact checked and doesn't show up on Snopes. It does. Uh, but nonetheless, the sort of vitriol and intensity of it uh, and some of the real ramifications of it, demonetization, these kinds of things seem to happen to the Babylon Bee uh, infinitely more than, than, uh, than, than it does to the Onion. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, I do think part of it is something that we, we refer to in, in, in uh, the book we've mentioned, uh, that there is a sort of possessive uh, kind of approach that comes from the left-leaning world uh, to say that uh, comedy, satire, and irony in particular belongs to the left. Uh, there are uh, social scientists who try to prove that uh, only liberals have a sense of irony, these sorts of things, uh, which creates sort of a dissonance when you see something like the Babylon Bee, and it sure looks a lot like the onion, and yet it's not from the left. Um, I think this is a real problem in uh, sort of uh, left-leaning worldviews, sort of uh, this sense of possession of, of the world of satire. Um, you know, part of it's just sort of trolling and, and sort of, uh, you know, like an online political battle. Uh, but part of it is the legitimate sense uh, by a lot of people who lean to the left that the right wing world can't do satire. And so if it's saying something that's untrue, it's not irony, it's, it's a lie. Uh, and I think, I think that shows a real weakness in, in a lot of uh, tendencies in liberal thinking uh, and ones that we, we kind of work to iron out a little bit uh, as we write about this. And I'll sort of tack on briefly about um, the... Uh, what the Babylon Bee is actually up to that we urge liberals to pay attention to is it makes fun of conservatives and the right. I think that is an impulse that is unique to sort of in-joking from a political perspective. So for example, a, a joke from The Onion making fun of Trump or some conservative leader doesn't have quite the same effect, quite the same uh, joke structure as it does coming from you know, the, the call coming from within the house, right? Hmm. Uh, when the Babylon Bee jokes about Trump, that is uh, a different sort of interesting phenomenon to analyze, to pay attention to, that as Matt said, we really urge liberals to sort of at least acknowledge and take seriously, even if you don't like it, even if you don't think it's funny, we have to acknowledge that this world, 40% of the country, whatever it is, is capable of self-deprecation, of making fun of itself, of crafting a headline that looks a lot like what we're used to on the left from The Onion over the last several decades. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting to watch, and uh, I appreciate that perspective. Well, Nick and Matt, I can't thank you enough for joining the show. I hope we can do this again in May of 2022 when your upcoming book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, hits newsstands. And by the way, you can... Uh, 
pre-order the book right now. And uh, as a new author myself, I know how important those pre-order figures are. So I can't wait to read it. I will definitely be one of the people purchasing it sooner than later. Thank you both again. And I love the fact that we have some disagreements. We can still talk about it. And I'm pretty sure we're not hating each other and not gnashing our teeth. And that's exactly how it should be. So guys, all the best. Thanks so much, Christian. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for listening to Ride on Hollywood this week. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts. I've heard that really matters and, well, I have to listen to what they say. And feel free to drop by my site, hollywoodintoto.com. It's updated seven days a week, and I guarantee no woke movie reviews. Never. Not on my site. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodIntoto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.